0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, just want to let you know, Bo's on a little vacation with his family. Uh, they rented a little RV and are traveling around, uh, so pray for them. And uh, he misses you guys. He wishes he was here, uh, but it's really good um, that he went away for a little bit. It's better that he went. No, I'm just kidding. Um, You can open in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 14. We're going to be continuing in the gospel of John, reading verses 15 all the way to 24. And the title of this sermon is, Another Helper. We'll read scripture together, ask for God's help one more time, and then we'll... Uh, look at what he has for us this morning. John 14, verse 15. God's word says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through your word, by your Spirit, about what Christ has done. Lord, we want uh, to be reminded again of our Lord and Savior. We want to see him glorified. And Lord, we want our lives to be conformed into his image. God, we have all strayed, we've all struggled in, a various, in various ways this last week, uh, and we need you. We need your help. So we ask that you would send your spirit, and that the spirit that dwells within your believers would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you would encourage us and pour strength into us and help us see Jesus Christ. The one who has loved us and the one whom we love. And Lord, if any don't know Christ, we ask that by your grace you would open their eyes to see the one who gave himself for the sins of the world. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, I uh, grew up uh, going to something called cadets. Now, cadets was uh, my church traditions version of like a uh, boys youth group or think kind of Boy Scouts. And within the cadets each week, uh, we would have landmarks. We, are, we all got into our lines based on our grades and we would go through uh, our various motto and our code and our pledge. So they were things that we had memorized. So the cadet troop leader would say, cadets, what is your motto? And we would shout out living for Jesus. Cadets, what is your code? A cadet? must be reverent, compassionate, obedient, kind, pure, consecrated, loyal, industrious, and cheerful. Uh, Cadets, what is your pledge? And we would say, thankful to God for his gifts to me, I pledge myself to be ready to serve God, my neighbor, my country, my church, my family, and my core. Uh, And the word was core, but we would often say corpse uh, because we didn't have the refinement of the silent P. And then would come uh, the... The final thing cadets what is your verse and we had one verse we would say if you love me you will keep my commandments john 14 verse 15 if you love me you'll keep my commandments so this verse has been drilled into my heart and there's something about this verse and just learning this verse stand alone apart from the rest of scripture uh, that happened in me now it's not that there was anything wrong with this verse there's nothing wrong with any verse in the Bible. Uh, but there was a problem with me. Uh, and the verse exposed that. But knowing this verse apart from everything else, it honestly caused my own heart to be troubled. Because here was the thing I knew enough to know I don't keep God's commandments. Uh, and the verse says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So I thought to myself, well, I. I don't keep God's commandments. So I probably don't love God. Which, honestly, at the time was true. I I didn't truly love God. But I took one step further. I said, "I, I don't keep God's commandments. He probably, I probably don't love him. So you know what? He probably doesn't love me. And there was a second trouble that stirred up in my heart because of this. I simply felt hopeless within it. I knew God's commandments, and I kept breaking them. So I probably don't love God. And I didn't only feel hopeless, but I felt helpless. I felt like I know what to do, but I don't do it over and over and over again. I knew before me I didn't keep God's commandments, and I was feeling hopeless and helpless in this moment. And as we come to our text, I want us to remember Jesus' opening words to his disciples, to ones whose hearts in these moments must have been troubled themselves. Because he opens up chapter 14 with the words, Let not your hearts be troubled. And there appears in our text before us to be two heart-troubling things for the disciples. One is on the surface, and that is that the Lord Jesus has just started to hint at the fact that he's going to leave them. He's been saying, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, but implicit in that promise is that he's going to go away. So their Lord is going to go away. And the second thing that maybe caused their hearts to be troubled is that he has called them to keep his commandments. And I want us to remember what's just happened in the last chapter and a half. We have Jesus come and say, I, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter just puts his foot in his mouth. Never. You're not going to do that. And then he tells them about the Father and how they can see the Father. And what do they say? Well, show us the Father. And what does Jesus say? He says, you guys don't get it. So how are these people, without Jesus, going to keep his commandments? These are, thir- these are certainly things that would cause their hearts to, To be troubled. And no doubt their hearts are troubled, but it's into this situation, into these moments, these probably five hours which take up chapters 13 to 17, into this moment Jesus gives them a promise. He makes a promise to them. And he says, I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to give you another helper. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, who this, un, who this other helper is. But before we get to Jesus' promise in verse 16, I want us to look at verse 15. I want us to work our way through it. Verse 15 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, as we're going to walk through this verse, I want us to understand the verse in its context. All right? D.A. Carson, a famous New Testament scholar, he has a nice little quip where he says this. Now follow me. He says, A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Now what does that mouthful mean? That means if you read one verse by itself apart from anything, you can end up with some funky theology. You can end up pretty discouraged because you're not actually understanding what the Bible is saying. So we want to read each text of the Bible within its context, as Bo uh, was showing us last week, starting small and building out so we can understand a, te- a verse in the light of a chapter, in light of a book, in light of the whole story of scripture. So what does this verse mean? Well, I want us to acknowledge first the statement by Jesus, it doesn't occur in a vacuum, okay? It comes to us within a context, and the flow of verses 13 through 17, which is this big chunk of scripture, this upper room discourse where Jesus is sharing what is, what is most in and on his heart for his disciples, he has done the following already. Here's the flow that's occurred so far. In chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus demonstrated his love for his disciples. Verse uh, Chapter 13, verse 1 says that Jesus, having loved his own. He loved them to the very end. And then what did he do? He got up and he took a towel and he washed their feet, demonstrating the love that he has for his disciples. And then in verse 34 of chapter 13, Jesus declared his love for them. He said, if I have so loved you, he tells them what the foot washing is about. It's about his love for them. He says, He declares it to him. Then he gives him a command. He says, if I've so loved you, you also ought to love one another. That's what you ought to do. So Jesus has demonstrated his love. He's declared his love for them. He commands them to love each other. And now where we are in this verse, Jesus turns and he says, now, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. So there's a couple things going on here. Not only is this a response to the demonstrated and declared love of Jesus, but it's also connected to prayer. If you remember last week what we learned, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And then the very next verse is a helpful context, a helpful explanatory thing for what are the kind of things that we should ask God for. Now, we should obey God and we should ask him to do. Well, it's his commandments, the things that he's told us. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And so uh, we should pray in accordance with what the commands of God are. Now, the second thing I just want us to be able to talk for a second about is the question that can often come up with this specific verse if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, we, we should ask ourselves, is this, is this a verse that teaches that salvation is by works? Is this a verse that teaches that the ones God loves are those who will keep his commandments? So everyone out here, if you want God to love you, start keeping his commandments and then he'll love you. Is Jesus saying, all start loving those who obey me? Well, no. That's not what's happening here. He's saying this is evident truth. This is a truism that those who love me will be ones who are keeping my commandments. This This is fruit of the love that a person has for Jesus. It's not the root of the love that one would have for Jesus. He's not saying if you do this for me, I'll do something for you. And at this point, we need to remember, too, where we are in the story. We're in chapter 14. And if Jesus is saying to people, I'll love people who obey me, then he'll never have to go to the cross. But he's going to go to the cross. Because the truth is, none of us, none of us have perfectly obeyed God. None of us have been ones who have merited love and favor from God. And he knows that. He simply wants his disciples to know those who do love me, those who are my disciples, what kind of love What kind of love are they going to have? What kind of lives are they going to live? Well, they're going to have lives that display their love through obeying what I've taught them to do. He's going to go to the cross. 1 John 4 is really helpful here. It's almost some of John's own commentary on these verses. He says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. He gave his son to die for our sins. So I want to remind you of the gospel as we come to a verse like this. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If if you realize you haven't kept God's commandments, the first thing you must do is obey his first command, and that is to believe who he is the one who died for sins, the one who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. At the outset, I want to remind us of the gospel. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And we love because he first loved us. So Jesus is saying, those who do love me, they do obey me. But the way to get God to love you isn't to start isn't to start obeying him. It's to recognize what God has already done. It's to recognize what Christ did on the cross and to recognize this love of God, it doesn't start with us, but it starts with him. It starts in his heart, not our own. So he says, those who do love me, they do obey me, and I'm going to do something for all of you. Into the heart-troubling place they are, he says, I'm going to do something for you. And so for the disciples who trip over their words, who say, show us the Father. And Jesus says, oh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To those who Jesus says, I need to wash your feet, and they say, never. What does he promise to do? To those who are worried because he's hinted that he's going away, and they wonder who's going to help them then, he promises another helper. He promises another helper. And so this morning, the way we're going to break down the text is four truths about this other helper, and I'll reveal them as we go for the sake of clarity. But I want us to, at the outset, just talk about those two words, another helper. Verse 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So who is this one? And, and what's he like And some of us are saying, well, I know, it's the Holy Spirit. We know who he is, and yeah, we we are right when we say that, but I I want us to come to the text with some fresh eyes and some expectation of who is this one really? And what is the Holy Spirit truly like? Who is he truly like? And we're actually taught quite a bit from these two words, another helper. Now, in the original language, the two words are this, and you're going to be able to follow along with me. They're not too complicated. It's alas, perikletos, okay? Alas, perikletos. Now, that first word, alas, is a word that means another. It's simply translated. Now, in Greek, there's two words for another. The first is alas, and the other is heteros. Alas and heteros. And within the context, we can tell that John is using the word alas not to mean uh, one of a different kind, but rather here in the context, John is, Jesus is saying in the gospel of John that he's going to give another helper of the same exact kind. In English, we don't have two words really for another, but we can mean two different things. If we're uh, drinking a soda, we can say, hey, give me another one of those of the same kind. Or we could say, hey, I want another. I want something other than this. I don't want this one. And here John is saying, uh, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you another of the same kind. I'm going to give you a helper of the same exact kind of which I am. That second word is paraclete. And paraclete, you've heard before. And in our Bibles, it's translated various ways. And I want us to walk through these various different words because they all get a trying to uh, capture the fullness of what a paraclete truly is. You might have seen the word helper translated here. I'll give you another helper. In the, the spirit of God, he is that, but it's, it, in our English language, that can be kind of a, of a weak term. That can be kind of one who we think, oh, he comes to just kind of help me on my way a little bit, and it's mostly on me. A second way we can translate the word is comforter. And that too, we can think that maybe the spirit just comes alongside us and just pats us on the back when we're feeling down, but that word, and it's, uh, it originally comes from the Latin that is com forte, com forte, which means to come alongside with strength, to strengthen a person. The word forte, if you know music, if you put a forte note, it's one that is played louder than others, one that has strength. Another way we translate that word paraclete is counselor. And we, we often think kind of like a high school career counselor, where you go into their office and they say, well, what do you want to do? And you say, I, I don't really know. And they say, well, you can do it. I believe in you. Is that what the Holy Spirit is like? Well, actually, in the, in the original language and back at this time, it has more of an idea of a legal counselor one who comes alongside of us, one who is the last one that probably gets closest to the idea, one who is an advocate for you, one who is in the legal realm, in the court setting, one who defends you, who stands at your side, who knows the law perfectly and pleads your case better than anyone else possibly could. Now, if the Spirit is another helper, then it begs the question, Well, who's the original helper? And if we ask ourselves, who's the paraclete in Scripture, we would probably, most of us, say the Holy Spirit. And we would be right. But it seems that the original paraclete actually is Jesus himself. You see, in another one of John's writings, in 1 John chapter 2, he writes this, My little children, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. But if any of you do sin, we have an advocate, brother." And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled because I'm gonna give one who is of the same kind as myself. He shares my very essence. He's even gonna go on to say, you actually already know him because he's been with you. Who is this other helper? Well, he's none other than the spirit of Christ. And that's the first thing we see this another helper to be. Point one is the Spirit of Christ. Verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, He'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you, and He will be in you. Man, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we can be so Tempted to believe that though scripture tells us otherwise, it honestly really would be better to have Jesus than the Spirit with us right now. We can be tempted at moments to really believe that, and we can be tempted to feel almost kind of sub Christian. We can think to ourselves, I would really feel like a great Christian if Jesus was right here by my side right now, physically. We can be so tempted to say that and in my own experience from life lived as a christian i know i and that we really start to go amiss we start to go wrongly when we separate the spirit of christ from christ himself when we think that this one who is the holy spirit we we don't really consider that he's just like jesus and who he is. They're they're two separate people. But to know that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Christ helps us so much to have clarity of what this Helper is like in our lives, what he's truly like. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a paraclete of the same kind as myself, and he's going to be with you Forever. And so if this spirit is of the same kind of Jesus, then we can discover what Sinclair Ferguson unpacks so helpfully for us, how precious this truth is for us. He says this, if he's the same kind of spirit as ourselves, thus we can say to have the spirit is to have Christ. And to have Christ is to have the spirit. Not to have the spirit of Christ is to lack Christ. To have the Spirit of Christ is to be indwelt by Christ. Who is this one? Well, as we've just unpacked, he's the Spirit of Christ. We just saw previously that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the next thing we're going to see identified about the Spirit is that he's the Spirit of truth. Well, Jesus, I thought you said you're the truth. He's the Spirit of truth? Jesus is going to say, Uh, The world can't see the Spirit, and in a little while, the world's not going to see me. We're going to see over and over again, Jesus and the Spirit share so many similarities, and that's because this Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, which the Father and the Son give to believers. Jesus says in verse 17 that the disciples already know him. And the way he says this is in two ways. He says this, he dwells with you. He dwells with you. Now at this point, we know this is before God has poured out his spirit in the fullness of what he's done at Pentecost. So we have to ask ourselves, how how is he dwelling with the disciples? Well, the spirit of Christ is dwelling with the disciples in that the spirit is fully in and upon Jesus Christ. And they know him. And since they know Jesus, they know the Spirit. They know what he's like. They know what he does. They already know him. But not only that, not only do they know him because he dwells with them, but he also gives them this promise. He will be in you. He will be in you. He says, the one who you already know because you know me and because I'm with you, get this, he's going to be in you you. And this is the fulfillment of God's promise to give a new covenant. What we heard in Ezekiel 36, that one day God had promised that he was going to give people new hearts. And he was going to put his spirit inside of them. And that with these new hearts, they really would be able to obey God's commandments. Because on these new hearts, the law would be written on their hearts and they would have the spirit of God dwelling in them. Let's keep looking at who Jesus tells us the Spirit is and what he does in the second point that he is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth, verse half of verse 17, Jesus says, I'm going to give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows sees him nor knows him. Now we won't spend too much time on this point because Jesus is going to unpack this a lot more in chapter 16 of the gospel of John. But I want us to know this. Who is this other helper? Who is the Holy Spirit? He is the Spirit of truth. One thing this means is that anytime, anywhere, anyone believes the truth of the Scriptures, it's because of the Spirit. And it also means this, if the Holy Spirit is God and God's Spirit, very truly God, and He's the Spirit of truth, then it's also true what Scripture says, that God isn't a God of confusion. He's not out to deceive people. He's not out to confuse people. He's the one who speaks truth. He's the one who brings order into chaos. He's the one who knows how things work rightly and brings... uh, and brings order into chaos and confusion. Jesus has said he's the truth, and the Spirit is the one who communicates the truth of who Jesus is. He's also the one who carried along men to write the Bible. It says in 2 Peter, he's the one who inspired the scriptures for us. If, If you've ever felt maybe worried, When it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit of God and you thought, man, I don't know if I've ever really experienced the Spirit's work in my life. If you have ever seen Jesus for who he truly is, if you actually love Jesus because you've seen what he's done on the cross for you and risen from the dead, if you know who God is as a father, you've experienced the work of the Spirit you've seen the spirit of truth at work in your life. Anytime you've rightly understood what scripture says, it is the spirit of truth at work in you. And so we can be encouraged by this. This Pericle, he is the spirit of Christ, and he is the spirit of truth. Not only that, but as we're going to see in verses 18 to 22, he's also the spirit of adoption. and I will love him and manifest myself to him. All right, let's first walk through the words of Jesus, and then we'll see how this relates to the Spirit, okay? Because Jesus is talking and making a lot of promises, but we want to understand his words first, and then we'll see how this all relates to the Spirit, because it does. Jesus says in verse 18, I won't leave you as orphans, but I'll come to you. How? and what coming? Jesus says, I won't leave you as orphans, but I'm going to come to you. So what's going on here? Uh, well, it's tempting to say, in Jesus saying, I'm going to come to you. We might be tempted at first to say, oh, this is probably speaking about Pentecost, right? Because Jesus is talking all about the Spirit, and then he's saying, and I'm going to come to you, and I'm not going to leave you as orphans. We would be tempted to say that at first, uh, But in the Gospel of John, Jesus' coming doesn't normally refer to Pentecost. It usually refers to Jesus' physical coming, not just his spiritual coming through his spirit. In verses 19 through 20, it says this. Jesus says, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me and I and you. So if it's not his coming at Pentecost, then what's going on here? Well, here, what we're speaking about is actually the first resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see that the world doesn't see him, and that is because he dies. Secondly, we see that the disciples do see him because in the Gospel of John, he appears to his disciples once he's been resurrected. And then he says it's proof Or Then he says, then in that day, in that day, you'll know that I'm in my Father. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the proof that everything he has said about himself is actually true. The one who predicts his own death and rises from the dead proves all that he has said. And Jesus has said, you're going to know that I'm actually in my Father. That God is my Father. But... What about us being in him? We're a little confused there, and that's where we've noticed something unique about the gospel of John. So if, you, uh, if you're able, can you turn to John chapter 20, verse 19 through 23? How does John describe the resurrection of Jesus Christ in that day? Well, starting at verse 19, it says this. On the evening of that day, that is the day Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. You hear that? Even so... I am sending you. There he's saying, the Father has sent me, and I'm sending you. I'm in him. You are in me. You are my messengers. But what about the Spirit? And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, from them, it will be withheld. Okay, so Here uniquely in the gospel of John, at his resurrection, we hear the account that Jesus gives them the promise that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit on the resurrection day. We're not told about that in the other uh, gospels. And once we get to this chapter, we'll be able to unpack all of what it's saying. But here we see Jesus on his resurrection in that day gives them the promise of the fullness of the Spirit that they're going to receive that will be poured out at Pentecost. So in this, Jesus promises three things. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And he says that you're going to live because I will live, because I do live. And he promises that he'll be in us. And then in verse 21, he says that the one who loves, the one who has his commandments and keeps them is the one who loves him and that the Father himself will love him as well. Okay, so all of those things, not being orphans, living because he lives, being in him and keeping his commandments, what does all of this have to do with the Spirit? Well, it has everything to do with the Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God applies to our hearts and our lives what the Father has designed to do and what the Son has. Has accomplished himself. Let me say that one more time. The Spirit of God, He takes what Jesus has done, what the Father has designed, and He applies it to our hearts. He makes it true and real, opening our eyes, unstopping our ears, applying it to our hearts and to our lives. So, to these promises, first, we're going to live because Christ rose from the dead. According According to the plan of the Father, and because he was raised through the Holy Spirit. As it says in the book of Romans, that same Spirit who rose Christ from the dead is at work in us. We live because he lived, according to the plan of the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we won't be orphans because we're going to have the Spirit. And this Spirit is the Spirit of Adoption. Turn to Romans chapter 8, because Paul brings all these themes together in verses 9 through 17. He says this, speaking to believers, he says, You, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here we see how Paul brings together the idea of adoption, together with obedience, and what it has to do with the Father, that we've been adopted into the we've been adopted by the Father through the spirit of adoption, by the work of his own son. We see all these things. Coming together, You see, before, before we were saved, before the Spirit came into our lives and dwelled in our hearts, we saw God's rules as only condemning us. God's rules were just one proof after another that we weren't His. But now, they show us the way to live as sons and daughters. They don't condemn us because the Son has perfectly fulfilled them for us. And through faith in him, his righteousness is credited to us. Before, we were most defined by our own works, what we did and what we didn't do, and by our own human relationships. Who loved us? Who who thought the world of us? Who thought we were great? Who thought we were terrible? That's, That's how we were most defined. But now, because of the work of the Spirit, our truest identity is as a son or as a daughter. The works that define our lives aren't our own works, but the works of Christ that are applied to us by the spirit of adoption. This is the kind of thing that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. It's the kind of thing that as we see Christ and what he's done, and we say, I have never done that by faith We know that what he's done has been credited to us. And so we can say, though I don't deserve to be a son or a daughter, because of Christ, I actually am. Is your heart ever troubled because you feel like nobody truly knows me? Is your heart ever troubled because you think nobody's ever loved me well enough? Nobody's ever, people have seen me. And maybe it's my own fault, but I've never been loved perfectly. Through the work of the Spirit of God, there's good news that you actually have a perfect Father in heaven. And the Spirit is the one who searches all things. He knows you better than anyone knows you. And He searches the mind of God. He knows the Father. He knows the Son better than anyone else knows them. And that Spirit is the one who dwells in you has been given to you as a sign that you've been adopted into the family of God. You are known and you are loved if you are in Christ. Uh, Henry Light, there's a a hymn that we've uh, been singing the last few weeks, Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken. Uh, It's one of my own favorite hymns, maybe top three. Uh, And Henry Light was alive in the 1800s and he had a really wicked father himself. Uh, His father separated from his mother and then went and married another woman. And so he sent his son Henry off to boarding school to go and live with this other family. And probably worst of all, when he would write to his son, he essentially disowned him and he would no longer sign his letters, your father... Uh, He would sign them "Your Uncle." He stopped calling his. He stopped saying to his son, "I'm your father." He would say, "I'm your uncle." But then you get the, the most curious, crazy thing in the hymns of Henry Light, and that is that the crescendos of his hymns almost always have to do with the work of the Spirit, and specifically what it means that he's come to know that God is his Father. He says this at one of the crescendos of Jesus, I, my cross, have taken, he says, think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, you can now repine. You can rest. That's the kind of effect that the spirit of God has in someone's life. As it says in Psalm 27, verse 10, though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Because of the work of Christ, applied by the power of the Spirit, according to the plan of God before all time, you can, no matter what you've done, no matter how you've been treated, know that you have a perfect Father in heaven who loves you perfectly. Christian the preciousness of your adoption into the family of God is actually enough to get you through anything in this life. Knowing that you are a son or daughter of God is enough to get you through any trial. But in verse 22, Judas raises a question. He says this, Lord, how is Judas, in parentheses, not Iscariot? I love it that it says that, right? Judas, not Iscariot, says to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He asks a fairly understandable question. He says, if you're going to manifest yourself to us, how is the world not going to see you? And probably underlying this is their ideas of what the Messiah was going to be like in his first coming. They're thinking, oh, he's going to manifest himself. He's going to show his power. And if the Messiah is going to show his power, then everyone's going to have to see what he's like. How will Jesus man- be manifested to disciples and not to the world? Well, he's going to do it through the spirit of holiness. And that's our fourth and last point. Through the spirit of holiness. Verses 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and, make, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. So how is this going to be fulfilled? How is he gonna manifest himself to him? Well, Jesus answers and he essentially says this, it's gonna be done through love. It's going to be manifested to my disciples, those who have eyes to see, through love expressed in keeping the commands of Jesus as sons and as daughters. I just want to read from 1 John chapter 3. Because there's times that that you'll read through the letters of John and it almost seems as if John is just reflecting on a certain scene in the Gospels. And it seems like he's reflecting on this scene right here. He says this John chapter first John chapter three verse nineteen and following. By this we shall know that we're of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence from God, and whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what he and do what pleases him. Sounds just like what Jesus has been teaching previously. Verse 23, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So look, we know that God is is holy and we know that the holy spirit is the holy spirit have you ever taken some time to think about that that the adjective given to know the third person of the trinity is holy there's something so essential to his identity that he's the spirit of holiness he's holy and though he's not called it here, right here, it's, it's everywhere in the text of keeping his commandments, of dwelling with him. It's everywhere is present the idea that he is the spirit of holiness. Jesus says the one who, who loves him and does keep his commandments, this is the one whom the Father will love. So how's Jesus going to manifest himself to his disciples? Well, it's going to be through them living holy lives that glorify God, that, love, that show and evidence their love for him. Now, I want us to notice the last words at the end of verse 23. It says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my father will love him and will come to him and will make our home with him okay so this spirit of holiness the one who we know is holy god we know that because in ourselves apart from christ we can't dwell with a holy god we know that if we were to come before a holy god that we would die because of our impurity we know when a prophet sees god sees Just not even his face, but just the trains of his robe like it is for Isaiah. They fall on their face and they just say, I'm so unworthy, I don't deserve to dwell here. How is this holy God going to manifest himself to his disciples? How are they going to see them? How are they going to dwell with him? Well, it's going to be through them keeping his commandments and at the same time, him making his Home with them, he says. The one who keeps the commandments, I'm going to come, and my Father's going to come, and we're going to make our home with Him. Now that word home, now word home is used one other time in the Gospel of John, and we saw it a few weeks ago. It's in verse two when Jesus says, "I'm going to go to my Father, and prepare a dwelling place for you in my Father's house." I'm going to prepare a dwelling place, that same word for home, where my Father is. And here he says, you who are keeping my commandments, who love me, we're going to prepare a home in you, and the Father and the Son are going to come to you, and we're going to dwell with you. And so it is, as it were, that from the farthest reaches of the heavens, Jesus is up there preparing a dwelling place for us in the Father's house. And at the same time, way down here on this earth where we dwell, God is preparing in us a dwelling place for the Father and the Son. It's as if from the furthest reaches to the furthest reaches, he's saying all the way there and all the way here, a dwelling place is being prepared in both spots. Jesus promised to go and prepare a dwelling place for us there in verse 2. He's preparing a dwelling place for us here in our own lives right now. And so it's as if it were from the furthest reaches of the heavens down to here on earth, God is saying, I'm going to one one day bring together these two places. And all the things you've ever longed for of a perfect heavenly home and it's going to come true and all the things you've ever feared about the fact that you shouldn't be there because of who you are and because of what dwells in your own heart that's going to be done away with because i'm going to prepare a dwelling place in you in your heart what does it mean for us it means that in heaven christ is preparing a dwelling place on earth he's preparing a dwelling place for the father and son in us, it means that the work of the Spirit is like this, as Sinclair once again says. He says, to me, this is one of the most wonderful ways to think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one whom the Lord Jesus sends into my life to make my life the kind of place that the Father and the Son will feel at home in. You hear that? Jesus is preparing a dwelling place in heaven for us. And the work of the Spirit right now is undoing all the kinds of things in our hearts and in our lives where we know if God were to come into my life right now, he wouldn't feel at home. He wouldn't feel at home when I snap in anger. He wouldn't feel at home with this sin that I struggle with. The Holy Spirit is at work in you to undo those things to make you more like Jesus Christ in whom the Spirit of God dwelled perfectly. And one day, the good news is that God will unite heaven and earth and that Christ will come again. And in that day, the dwelling place of God will be with men. And this this earth isn't going to be imperfect anymore. He's going to make all things perfect new and so who is this other helper who is this one that jesus says don't let your hearts be troubled because i'm going to give him to you well he's the spirit of christ you know him if you know jesus you know what he's like he is the spirit of truth who guides us in all truth he's the spirit of adoption by which we cry out abba father no matter what we've done if we trust in christ we have a father in heaven he's the spirit of holiness making a holy dwelling place in us that one day is going to fully dwell with the eternal triune god so it begs the question for us to obey the commandments of god not, not as a way to merit favor with him, not as a way to earn something from him, but as one who has been adopted into his family, w- what is there in your life that you know that's not the kind of thing that God would feel at home in? That's not the kind of thing that is befitting the one who has died for me and the one who is preparing a dwelling place for me. Whatever that is, let's, let's repent of it. Let's trust the cross of Christ to cleanse our hearts from it and let's trust the one who's going to fully bring this dwelling place from heaven to earth and unite the two and then let's sing and worship for all the things that he has done church don't let your hearts be troubled he's provided a helper for us let's pray lord jesus we do ask that you would be pleased in our church in our lives and in our collective life as a church to make this the kind of dwelling place you'd be pleased and feel at home in. Lord Jesus, make us more like yourself through the work of your spirit according to the plan of your Father. And God, on this day we ask that we would know we have a perfect Father in heaven. And in that, that the things that were troubling our hearts would be done away with as we trust in Christ and what he's done. Pray us all in his name. Amen.